Good morning, great men and women of God. I'm thankful that you're here with us today. We're continuing a series uh, called Sometimes It Takes a Table. We're walking through the book of Luke together. This morning I was thinking about how tables remind us of many things, but one of the things that tables uh, remind us of is that no matter what we've done, we are a person worth celebrating. When you sit at a table, no matter what you've done, there's an aspect to the meal, there's an aspect of receiving, there's an aspect of, uh, uh, of celebration. When you want to show someone that their future is brighter than their past, when you want to show someone that it's possible to have a second chance, when you want to show someone the one-way love of Jesus Christ, sometimes it takes a table. And that's what we're doing in the book of Luke, is uh, we're following Jesus from table to table. And Luke structured his account of the time he had with Jesus kind of around tables. Because in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, it seems that Jesus is always either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or just leaving a meal. And it was at these meals that it seems were more than food, they were more than dinner, that actually in a way Jesus was bringing the kingdom one table at a time. And so we're talking about as a church, how, how do we learn from that and how can we find a, a place for the spiritual practice of table in our lives? I want you to make no mistake about something, that when Jesus ate with people who were far from God, it marked him for death. Jesus was put to death for his table fellowship. The people he sat with, the things he said at tables, this angered the community and that eventually brought about his death, but he never stopped welcoming people to the table and he hasn't stopped since. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 and we're going to see kind of in some ways maybe a familiar passage to some of you, but we're going to see an invitation to a table that becomes an invitation into new life. So I want to invite you to turn to Luke 19 with me and have a seat at the table and we'll pick up the text in verse 1. Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. They went into Jericho, and they passed through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector who was very rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but being a small man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran on up ahead onto the route that Jesus was going to take. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him. Yay, we love Zacchaeus, right? How many of you grew up maybe in a church setting where you learned a song about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was what? A wee little man. See, that's fun to say, right? And we get to say that, and we sing these songs, and he's, he's, he brings a joy to our face. But I tell you, if you lived in Jericho, that's not what you thought. If you lived in Jericho, you probably had other songs and other names for Zacchaeus that weren't so church-friendly. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, as we've talked about before here. Uh, tax collectors were kind of the Bernie Madoffs of their time. The actions they took affected people in deep ways. People lost savings, they lost their homes, they lost their freedoms, because people like Zacchaeus used their position to legally take whatever they wanted. Now, Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, he was what? The chief tax collector. He's very rich. He's the guy that not only could take your money, but he would take money from the guys taking your money. How bad is it when even the other tax collectors are like, I don't want to hang out with that guy. He was an economic terrorizer of people, and he wasn't exactly the kind of guy you brought home for dinner. He wasn't welcome at anyone's table. And he certainly wasn't welcome in the temple. 
And to be honest, uh, he probably wasn't that interested in the, the rungs and the hoops of religion anyways. But something we see in his story is this. Zacchaeus may not have been interested in religion, but he was fascinated by this rabbi named Jesus. He wanted to know more. He wouldn't go to a temple, but he'd climb a tree. Verse 5, when Jesus came to this place, he looked up. Such a simple little comment that Luke records here, but it makes me wonder, why did Jesus see Zacchaeus when other people did not? Maybe they did see him. Maybe they saw him and they just saw his reputation. Or maybe they saw him as, that's the guy that took my house. Or maybe they saw his fancy clothes and they thought, my savings paid for that. And they saw him, but they didn't see him. Jesus saw him. Zacchaeus, he said to him, hurry up and come down. I have to stay at your table today. So he hurried up, stay at your house today. So he hurried up, came down, and welcomed him with joy. So I actually misspoke there and I said table because there's not actually a table in this story that we see. But this, when he says, I have to stay at your house today, this is an invitation where Jesus is inviting himself over to have meal to do table with Zacchaeus. So it's a table story without a table yet. And as a famous traveling rabbi, now remember, his reputation is beginning to rise. Jesus could have eaten with anyone in town that he wanted to. What a coup to be able to say to your friends and neighbors, yeah, you know, Jesus was here last week, he ate at my house. What did he eat? He ate fish. He didn't wash his hands before he ate, though. That's kind of gross, but he could have eaten with anyone. Did he go to a leading religious figure? No. Did he go dine with one of his most devout followers? No. Did he take some food and create food and take it over to the poor or to a widow or to an orphan? No. Instead, Jesus says, no, I have to stay at your house today, you Zacchaeus, the richest guy in town. Now, just to make this point clear, Up to this moment, what had Zacchaeus done to earn this invitation? What has he done to earn the favor of Jesus? Nothing. He's still the same guy, the same uh, greedy person. He hasn't changed his life. He hasn't repented. He hasn't changed anything. He hasn't promised anything. He just is Zacchaeus. And Jesus made a decision that he was going to throw the kingdom party his way. So Jesus goes off to eat with the sleaziest joker in town. Now, how did the crowd of people receive that? Look at verse 7. Everyone began to murmur when they saw it. He's gone in to spend time with a proper old sinner, they were saying. Hey, I thought Jesus was against greed. Why, Why is he going to this guy's house? Hey, didn't Jesus stand up and say that he was here to bring good news to the poor? Uh, Sounds like a hypocrite to me. Hey, how can Jesus honor this guy by going to his house? Doesn't he know what he's done to the people in this town? This is a chance for Jesus to stand up and say, enough is enough, and to call him to the the task and to to denounce him, and yet he goes off and dines with him. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Now, we've been at enough meals at this point in this series with Jesus to know how things are supposed to go now, right? Jesus is at a meal, somebody says something, or they think something, and then Jesus decides to tell a story that makes everyone feel awkward, right? That's basically what he does. Except this time, before Jesus can open his mouth, someone else starts to speak. And it's the most surprising thing anyone in town had ever heard. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood there and addressed the master. Look, master, I'm giving half my property to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to give it to them four times over back to them. What just happened? 
Now, I've read this text several times. Maybe you're, you're seeing it as well. I'm looking for the part where Jesus said, if you want to be loved, you need to give away half your property. Did he say that? No. Did he tell him to do anything? No. He didn't have to. You see, when Jesus invites you to the table, he doesn't give you a set of do's and don'ts, a list of rules and regulations. When Jesus invites you to a table, it's to remind you of who you were created to be. This is who God created Zacchaeus to be. A man with an open heart, a man that meets needs, a man that loves us. This is the Zacchaeus of the second chance. Now, I don't know how the math works here, but let me just throw this out. If you were to take one half of your assets and give them all away, and if you were going to go back and every time you had wronged someone, you're going to pay them back four times what you had taken from them, how much would you have left? I know I said there wouldn't be math, but there was just a little bit of math there, right? Not a lot is the math answer there. Can you imagine the line of people that began to form outside of Zacchaeus' house? What are you here for? I'm getting my money. Now, what's interesting is one chapter before this, Luke tells us a story where Jesus meets a man that we have kind of come to call the rich young ruler. His actual name was Fred, but we call him the rich young ruler. And in that story, Jesus actually did look at him and he said, hey, I do want you to give up all of your wealth and I want you to come and follow me. And the man could not. And so his wealth, in a sense, became an obstacle to his faith. But here in this story, this man's wealth and what he does with it is a demonstration of faith. Something's happened. And Jesus recognizes that and celebrates it. Listen to what he says. Today, verse 9, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. You see, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Now, what's interesting is with the rich young ruler, he kind of had a way out. If he had given up all his wealth and followed Jesus, he would go to new places and people wouldn't know him. Zacchaeus doesn't get any good deal like that. He doesn't get to go to Jesus with Jesus to a brand new city where people don't know who he is. He has to face the music, the songs that he's played. Everyone in town knows him by the name traitor. He's a traitor to his race. He's a traitor to his religion. And Jesus says, nope, new name, son of Abraham. And he's going to have to live out this new life in his town. See, he makes this promise, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. There's a crowd hearing them. And when Jesus leaves, he has to keep living this life. And so that's a challenging thing. And today I have come to stay at your house has turned into today salvation has come to your house. Why? Well, as we've talked about, the practice of Jesus' day was who you did table with was a big deal. And if you were a faithful person, you would not share a meal with an unfaithful person. If you were a spiritually clean person, you would not share a meal with a spiritually unclean person. Faithful people, good people, didn't eat with those people. You could only share a table if you've changed and cleaned up. And so kind of the thought was, we can't have communion until you change. We can't have communion until you are converted and you change. But as Ben Meyer notes, the act of Jesus was to reverse this structure. Communion first, conversion second. His table fellowship with sinners implied no acquiescence in their sins, for the gratuity of the reign of God canceled none of its demands. In other words, Jesus didn't lower his standards or he didn't eat with someone and that meant he was agreeing with them. He just did. But in a world in which sinners stood ineluctably condemned, 
Jesus' openness to them was irresistible. Contact triggered repentance. Conversion flowered from communion. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That the table could actually change lives. Zacchaeus changed. He he became a, a different person. He loved because through a meal, Jesus loved him. And we know that John says we love because God first loved us. What could this mean for us? What could this mean for the relationships in our lives? I want to pause for a minute in the middle of this meal, and I want to to give you a moment to reflect with God. Just a moment to kind of catch your breath, to think about the story, to think about how it impacts your own life, and to let God speak into your life as well. Here are some questions that could guide this time. What does sitting with someone imply? What do you think that that means? Here's a second question I've been wrestling with this week. Who would I be embarrassed to sit with? There was a risk that Jesus took when he sat down at the table with Zacchaeus. I want to give you a moment and let's reflect together with God. Then we'll come back and and see where this story goes. That second question is interesting to me because um, I'd like to think no one. I, I would not be embarrassed to sit with anyone, but um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I wonder if my list has changed over the years. Um, I used to be embarrassed when my kids were fighting at a table out in public. That's always embarrassing. Um, the, one of the reasons I became an extravagant tipper was because I just felt so much shame about the damage that my kids had done to a table. I was just like, oh, sorry, sorry, here, here, just take all this. I'm so sorry for what we did. I was at a meal uh, a month or two ago with someone, and I, was, I just I realized I was embarrassed by some of the thing, ways that they were acting. 
And God's like, what makes you so special? Why, why, why do you have to be embarrassed by that? And then I think about people that, uh, if you saw me eating with this person, what would you think? And, I, I, you know, we're all taught that it's important to really consider who we spend time with. And so it's just interesting questions. But in this story, a man was changed because of a meal. A town was transformed because of a table, and it all started because Jesus looked up. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost here in this story. And then earlier he said, and the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And we're putting those together saying, maybe meals help us bring the kingdom one table at a time. But we have to be able to look up. We have to be able to see people the way that Jesus saw Zacchaeus. If he had just kept on going, we'd never have this. So how do we do that? How, how do we see people like Jesus did? What I want to suggest as we're learning how to practice the table, I want to offer a practice to you this morning that is uh, something that might be able to help us see people, and it's this. The practice of sitting with. Just say that with me. The practice of sitting with. Now, when I turned this manuscript in to the people that do the slides, I got a response back, and they said, sitting with what? You, you, didn't end the, you ended the sentence with a preposition. I said, no, it's got a period at the end, so it's good. <laughs> Not the practice of sitting with this or that, just the practice of sitting with. Something we notice about Jesus is he was never in a hurry. In fact, people were often frustrated with Jesus' pace of life. Come on. Jesus modeled a love that stops and sits with. Even when it was a risk. And this is what I'm seeing in the story is that Jesus took an actual risk by sitting with Zacchaeus. It was a risk of misjudgment. It was a risk of what his communion with this man could communicate to the crowd. Well, I guess cheating people is okay because Jesus seems to be fine with it. Why didn't he say something? Zacchaeus was an incredibly messy man, but for Jesus, messy people were not the enemy. And Jesus had this radical idea that if he was going to reach outsiders, he would have to go outside. Only 8% of the miracles Jesus performs were inside the synagogue or a religious building. 92% of them were out there amongst the people in the middle of the messiness. And sometimes to get messy, that means, like Jesus did, that we actually invite ourselves to a table, that we don't worry about the reputation, that we throw the party. And this is why Jesus went to tax booths to meet tax collectors. He went to wells to meet women, to meet a woman. That sounded wrong, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Just keep going. He went to a home like Zacchaeus's to welcome an outcast. And this is why a team from our church went to Thailand this week to sit at tables around brothels to communicate to people that they are worth celebrating. Pastor Susie and her husband Matt and Pastor Jonathan are with a group called Exodus Road right now, and this is an organization that fights human trafficking, and the way that they do that is they send people in undercover to pose as interested parties, and they're gathering information, and they find out ages and underage situations. Then they leave, and they take that to the local law enforcement that now has a little more um, pressure on them and a little more access. And they go back, and they rescue these girls, and they bust the people. We thought we'd give you a little update of where they are. I want to show you a video. It's not shot that well because it's shot on a little phone in, in Thailand, but it should give you an understanding of kind of what Matt, Susie, and, and Jonathan are going through. Let's take a minute and catch up with the table. Hey everyone, sitting here with uh, Matt and Susie and 
John Tian Beach. I think I'm saying that right. I have no idea. My Thai is horrible. Um, and we are remembering last Sunday just worshiping at Pulper Rock and the challenge that Thomas gave us where Jesus says, if, if you're going to have a party, invite somebody um, to the party who has no chance of ever repaying you. Um, and he challenged us to not take communion until we'd sat across from the table from someone like that, that normally we wouldn't invite, that wouldn't, wouldn't have a way to repay us. Um, so the three of us have been doing that these last few days, um, going into brothels, sitting across the table from uh, girls, from people who work there, mama sons, uh, just spending time with them. And I, I thought we'd just share maybe a word or two of just uh, reflection on that. It's a little tough to capture in words, but I thought we'd share a little bit. Um, I'm struck by this, just that Jesus says real pointedly, uh, it's people who have no chance to repay you. And I don't particularly love going into a brothel um, and sitting at that table, but I've been struck by this time and time again. There is no way that these girls could ever come to my table, um, you know, the place that I normally eat. And so there, there really is only one option here. Um, and I think that's what Jesus was getting at, is you have to, you have to go find them um, and sit with them. And so I, I've just been struck by that over and over again. They don't have an option of ever coming to our table. So that's, that's part of why we're here. So, Judy, how about you? Um, as Christians, we would say that a brothel is literally the last place that we should be. And um, just after having been there the last two nights into several brothels. Um, I'm just struck by the burning building that it is, and uh, in reality, we should be the first ones uh, to run into that place and save who we can. Um, that's really what struck me the most these last few days. Um, I want to run in there. Uh, this morning in our debriefing meeting, uh, Matt Parker was just taking us through what we've seen, what we've smelled, like all the stuff that's happening in these places. Uh, and Jonathan brought up the idea of us doing our communion uh, after our debriefing. And I think the thing that's been most impactful for me about gathering at the table um, was what Matt said this morning about if we can get past the nudity of what's going on, uh, get past the children being sold for sex, the lights, all that stuff. And if we can approach these situations at these tables rather than being a brothel, but stepping back once or twice and seeing that it's, this is actually a, a place of orphans that need to be rescued, that need to be brought to a table that's safe. Um, that's probably the biggest impact on reframing and having a new perspective about Uh, it's obviously a hard space to operate in. We're, we're really thankful for the Excess Road and just the stuff that they are doing here in um, carrying the difficulty of this and the frustrations of this. And uh, I, I've been struck by just their patience and figuring this out one step at a time, um, stepping towards this table, sitting down with people and figuring it out. And I know that's who we want to be as a church. And uh, because of that, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we'll do that now. Uh, it's Christ's body broken for you.
Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin for all people. We'll see you soon. Go with God. Sometimes a table can take a toll on you. Uh, watch that video several times now. Um, what's the tone you're picking up in that room? They're heavy. They seem a little shell-shocked to me. And I'm thinking about, uh, as a reminder to us, we need to be praying for these guys as they are experiencing some things and they're going to come back to us. These three are uh, sitting at tables and they're having to smile and act like they're someone that they're not, even while inside their heart's being shredded. And one of the things that strikes me is that everyone in that place that they're in is, uh, assumes things about them, assumes why they're there and what they're doing. They're being misjudged. They're being misrepresented. In fact, everyone there is cool with and, and thinking that they are there to do one thing that is actually the, the worst imaginable thing any one of them could ever imagine being said about them. And the crowd murmurs. And Jesus eats with Zacchaeus. If we're going to see people like Jesus, we need to be willing to sit with and not worry about our reputation. Going doesn't mean condoning, and eating doesn't mean agreeing, and table doesn't mean tolerance. It just means that we believe that no matter who you are or what you have done, you are something worth celebrating. And when Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus, he didn't just speak to him, he, he spoke up for him. He called him by name, Zacchaeus. He recognized him. He redeemed him. He gave him a new name. This man is new, and he is now the son of Abraham. And Jesus is announcing something. He's announcing that the table and the kingdom are for people like this. No matter what he had done, Zacchaeus was something worth celebrating. And sitting with helped this outcast find his way back to God. I was reading something amazing this week about, as we think about wanting to share the truth of Jesus with other people and what's like that, how does that work. Dave Ferguson was rec recounting a uh, doctoral thesis he was studying called Blessers versus Converters. And the researchers looked at these two teams of missionaries that went on short-term trips into Thailand, actually. One group was called the Blessers, and they went with the intention of simply blessing people. Uh, they saw their mission as blessing whomever came their way. What are the practical needs we can meet? How can we bless someone? What is Jesus asking us to do with this person? Now, the converter group, though, on the other hand, they went with also a very clear mission, which was we are here to evangelize. We are here to convert people. This is what the research found, that the blessers had almost 50 times as many conversions than the converters. I'll say that again. The blessers were 50 times more successful at helping people find their way back to God. Now, were, were one of the groups doing something wrong? No, they weren't doing anything wrong, but there's just something powerful about sitting with. When we sit with, when we listen to, when we stand with, when we risk reputation, when we find something worth celebrating, we deliver an unexpected kindness that opens hearts. I think this is what happened with Zacchaeus. Susie said... Um, it's like a burning building. I, and she wanted to run in. I, I agree as Christians. We, I agree with Reggie Joyner who says Christians should be the first people to show up to heal racial tension. Christians should be the first ones to step up to fill in the gap for foster care. Christians should be the first to address issues in underserved communities. Christians should be the first to say this is not a political issue. This is a people issue. We've become so skilled at speaking against issues we've forgotten how to speak for people. The gospel doesn't segregate. 
It integrated. All because Jesus said, I must come to your house today. So great men and women of God, the crowd saw a sinner and they wondered. Jesus saw a man and he welcomed. And out of that communion flowers conversion. This is what the one-way love of Jesus can do. I wanted to close with something. I actually, uh, 10 years ago, uh, taught on this passage here, and I shared a story, and I want to share this story again. Uh, every 10 years, I'm going to share the story. So you're here on the day, that I'm going to share the story for this year. But um, it's a powerful story, I think, of, of an event that happened that communicates and captures, really, for me, who I want to be as a believer. It's the story of Tony Campolo. He's professor of sociology at Eastern College. He was in Honolulu for a conference, and because of the flights and everything, he was jet-lagged, so it's 3 in the morning. He's wide awake. He goes to this coffee shop, and in walk these women, and he learns from their conversation that they are street walkers. They're ending their shifts, and they're just talking about their day. He said, let me tell his story. I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, tomorrow is my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me, a birthday party? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why, why do you have to be so mean? I, I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't expect you to throw me a party or bring some cake. I, I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why would I have one now? When I heard that, Tony says, I made a decision. I sat and waited till the woman had left, and then I called over the guy behind the counter, and I said, hey, does she come in here every night? Yeah, she does. Her name's Agnes. She comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday. I said, what do you think about this idea? What if you and I throw a party for her? We'll throw a party right here tomorrow night. A smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks, and he said, oh, yeah, that's great. So look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll show up early about 2.30, and I'll, I'll, I'll help decorate the whole diner, and I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I picked out some crepe paper decorations at the store. I made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that said, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that place looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15 a.m., every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open. In came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready, and when they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs began to buckle. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her, and she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter as we all sang Happy Birthday to her. As we got towards the end of our singing with Happy birthday to you. Her eyes moistened. When the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she completely lost it. Started crying. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out those candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And a few seconds later, he did. Then he handed her a knife. All right, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, cut the cake. We all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, Look, Harry, um, is it all right with you if, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, uh, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? 
I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay with me. If you want to keep the cake, you keep the cake. Why don't you just take it home if you want to? Can I? Then she looked at me and she said, I just lived down the street a couple of doors. Uh, I want to take the cake back home, okay? And I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly towards the door. As we all just sat there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, why don't we pray? <laughs> Looking back on it now, it seems more than a little strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice and said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when the words just came out, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and then said, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was a church like that, I'd join it. I'd go to a church like that. Are we a church like that? Are we the church in Colorado Springs that is said of us, those folks will eat with anyone? I want to pray, but I want to leave you a question to consider. It says, who could you sit down with? Who could you sit with to let them know they are something worth celebrating. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the table that we come to, your table. And when we come to your table, we celebrate you. We celebrate your life, your death, your resurrection, and the fact that you're returning for us. But at the same time, when we come to the table, you're celebrating us. Because your life and your death and your resurrection and your return are a statement to us to say we are something worth celebrating. We receive that today, but Lord, we look out also into the trees of our city and in our neighborhoods. Who is it you're calling us to sit with to remind them that they are worth celebrating? We invite you to open our eyes. In Jesus' name.